this episode, I'd like to bring your attention to what is happening in Palestine and Gaza, even after the announced ceasefire. I'll link reliable sources for information and news below, and I encourage everyone to stay away from passivity, especially since this time and this activity is having a great impact on Palestine, uh, unlike any other in the past years. Remember that regardless of what your views are on the Israeli occupation, that it's crucial whenever we are literally witnessing decades of genocide and war crimes to It's important to acknowledge the seriousness, cruelty, and inhumane actions and make those responsible, pay for their action, and hold them accountable to that. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Daydreamin'. A few things happened over the past month that made me think of fear. I thought of how similar it is to love and the way we experience it and how it can actually change the course of our lives. What we feel, how we feel it, and why we feel it. And how different the response varies from our childhood as we mature into adulthood. Why do we experience rational versus irrational fears and why do we experience phobias? What makes us feel safe and why? All these were questions running through my head, so I did some research, as one does, and I found the answers to some of my questions. Lots of interesting mechanisms behind this incredibly paralyzing emotion that I cannot wait to share with you all. But just a little disclaimer before, all this is based off of my own research. I'm not a psychologist or neurologist or an academic in these fields. Uh, this is merely just what I found and for your curiosity's sake and for sharing information. So please take it with a grain of salt. As all of these concepts, I will have simplified into less complex words with less jargon and technical terms to make this episode more accessible and enjoyable for all levels and not just experts. And it is going to be more on the psychology side of things and neurology side of things rather than um, a philosophical take on fear. So yeah, hope you enjoy. So let's start at the basics. What is fear? There's no universal definition for it, but fear is generally explained as an emotional and biochemical response to threat. That could be perceived threat or actual danger, as in something that we imagine in our heads, uh, such as anxiety, or an actual danger, such as you're standing at the edge of a precipice. Emotion has no single scientific definition yet, but we can explain it in simple terms as a state of feeling. There are three theories of emotion, so it is said to be by physiological activity, neurological activity, or cognitive activity. So there's really three ways of kind of explaining why and how emotion happens. The reason there is no particular uniform definition for fear is because it blends and requires many different specialized fields fields to be studied. Currently, fear is being studied by research in phylogeny, uh, psychology, neurology, ethology, uh, which is a study of like animal behavior or human behavior, and philosophy, as well as many more 
many much more niche fields. What I found very interesting is that some experts criticize the way fear is researched because A, we cannot know when or why animals experience a central state of fear. And of course, in order to study this emotion, we need to study it across many different organisms for comparison and things. And B, we can neither detect nor study a central state of fear by our own abstract concept of what fear is. In other words, we create fear in these studies inorganically and test certain stimuli and observe certain reactions, hence limiting ourselves with our current understanding of fear and not really accounting for all the multitude of reactions that we expect and don't expect both. Fear is different from other emotions in the sense that it doesn't follow one brain circuit, one pathway but actually causes brain activity in multiple circuits. And this can change with people and situations, and that makes it very difficult to measure and and study. Nowadays, fear is classified into types that have been set by neurological response to the stimulus. However, this is now being criticized, as there is not a solid reason to classify the fear subtypes simply because different stimuli are processed by different neurons, you know? Basically, it's not complex enough to be classified as different types. It's just like receiving and responding differently to different visual or auditory stimuli. There's different pathways for those two. We can't really classify different types of vision. And it's very, very complex and mostly based on interception and verbal reporting. There's so many things that determine the fear response too. How intense the fear is, will you freeze, run, or fight? What about the behaviors, um, such as not eating or seeking out a person when, uh, when the fear is not immediate? Determining if the fear is fear or anxiety, if it's rational or irrational. What are, what are your evaluations of the situation and which response optimizes your survival in your brain? There's also the matter of needing comparative evidence, as I said, across different species, but not being able to generalize the fear response or detect if the species is responding to fear in an unpredictable way. It's a study that's still in its infancy, and truly I am looking forward to being able to learn more about this in the coming years when we have more, say, foundational, uh, more than foundational information. Now, let's talk about how fear begins. Fear is thought to be spread or it happens in mainly two ways. It's either very instinctual um, and kind of like an evolutionary adaptation thing, or it happens by fear conditioning. Since there's not there's so much ambiguity in what fear even is. You can imagine the lack of explanations about what causes it. But put simply, fear is only a tiny bit instinct for survival. Most fear that we experience nowadays in our society is learned. We often call this conditioning, as I said, in our daily conversations. I want you to think of the Pavlov experiment or the Pavlov effect. You know, the dog and the ringing and their appetites. (laughs) 
Conditioned fear is when you observe, process, and store something as a threat or danger. You associate it with that state of fear, even if it's not inherently dangerous. The father of psychology asked, "Do we run from a bear because we are afraid, or are we afraid because we run?" But if we break down the question, he's really asking too: Why do we run from the danger, and what exactly makes us feel fear? Have you ever said "ow" or "sorry" when you hit an inanimate object, or if it falls, even though you don't feel pain or remorse? That's one way to kind of explain why you can give a fear response even if you don't feel a threat or aren't aware it's a threat. This is kind of a non-conscious fear or an instinctual fear that your body responds to. So that's one type of fear that we observe, or one way that we observe fear.、Um, one one thing that we observe fear is caused by. There were studies done on blindside people. So these are people that can't see but still. Can respond to visual stimuli subconsciously in their brain, and that showed that their bodies still responded to the fear stimulus despite no reports of feeling afraid. Conditioned fear is a little similar and a little different. It can be similar in the sense that sometimes you don't understand what the threat is or face an actual threat, but you still experience the feeling, uh, um, the feeling afraid part. It results from our brains processing and storing and linking certain stimuli to danger as they process the the stimuli, and it can be learned by many ways. It can be learned by social observation, verbal instruction from a role model, or a modulation of traumatic memory, and many many more complex ways. A lot of fear is learned during infancy, for example. I want to assume that we know what conditioning is, and I want to get into the cool stuff like how the how of it all. But briefly, briefly put, it is modifying or making someone react in a specific way to an event or stimulus by association and learning. It works by associating a true dangerous or aversive stimulus with a much more neutral one. Or one that you don't really register as a fear,、uh, as a dangerous thing right away, such as, for example, associating an electric shock with a pleasant sound or a、uh, or a certain image. Like you see, you get、um, an electric shock and you see a photo of a snake. So that might start might cause you to start associating the snake and the feeling of getting electrically shocked, and that. Results in the fear of snakes. This is kind of the experiment that's most commonly referenced by articles and studies. Another conditioned fear example is feeling afraid of physical closeness or touch due to any type of physical violence or trauma until you basically start registering、um, physical touch only as fear. You, the only way your brain can register and responds to is to respond to physical contact. Is as a fear-inducing danger. The amygdala is the part of the brain that's responsible for this processing. It is the main part responsible for memory functions and fear. It's also the most studied. So there's probably there's a lot more parts of the brain that 
also are responsible for this process, but the amygdala is kind of like the the main one and the one that's mostly studied so far. Since it's, since it's involved in both memory function and fear, it makes sense that it would be central in fear conditioning. The neurons responsible for fear and memory in the amygdala will undergo a process called long-term potentiation, which is basically like a strengthening of a chemical synapse and it leads to learning. This is association. When these two parts are active at the same instant, you learn to associate them, and this leads to the development of a fear response to that stimuli that was present at the same time with the dangerous stimuli. Another really interesting thing that I actually learned about while I was uh, researching is, it's very new to me, was contagious fear. And I came across it when I was researching this uh, for this episode, and I came across Dr. Donna Berry's studies. She studies and researches fear responses and other emotions in autistic individuals versus non-autistic individuals. She explained from her studies that it can be concluded that fear is sometimes contagious. When movies like It featuring clowns in horror films uh, begin to gain popularity, many people developed a fear of clowns. What's strange is that large numbers of people who had not even seen any of those films had also developed a fear of clowns. And that was simply by social observation. Their brains began to associate the negative and unpleasant responses of others that they were witnessing, so they were seeing someone panic because of a clown, and their brains began to associate that negative and unpleasant responses of others to the stimulus, which is the clown. And they adapted these responses and thoughts themselves because kind of, if this person responded that strongly, it must definitely be a bad and dangerous thing. And so I must avoid it. So it's kind of like a protective fear. But this was not observed in autistic individuals because they don't catch on to um, social and emotional cues as well as non-autistic individuals. And so they did not form that link between um, people's responses or what they were seeing in, in the reactions of people to the clowns. It's very interesting to see that we as a, society, as a society can perpetuate so many thoughts and emotions like this and without even being aware of it. Also, I'm here for having fearless autistic people be our protectors and I think we should have more autistic superhero characters playing on that little thing, like if we can exaggerate that fearlessness part a little bit. Because obviously they're not fearless, but it makes sense, kind of, to because they wouldn't. The superhero wouldn't catch on to other people being scared, and they wouldn't feel panic, uh, just because of that. So it'll make them more kind of calm and stable and courageous in in the scene. I think it would be really cool to have like an autistic superhero character and playing onto this part. And fearlessness is a nice set, and this is a nice segue into fearlessness and getting over fear and the treatment of phobias and anxiety and stuff. So how can we actually deal with or manage fear? There's two main ways that psychologists or psychiatrists approach fear when it comes to treatment. The first 
is systematic desensitization, and the second is flooding. You can't really remove the fear, but you can remove the association. So, fear is created by a sensitizing event or a, a memory that creates the association, the conditioning that I explained earlier. The therapies work by, by gradual cognitive and behavioral learning to remove that conditioned fear learning. So it's, it's kind of like more conditioning, but you're conditioning that person to not feel the fear or to dissociate between the stimulus and the fear response instead of the opposite. It's kind of like pressing the undo button. Cognitive therapy and psychoanalysis are used to find the root cause of the fear and understand these emotions behind the fear so they can help the person see it in a more positive or neutral way. While behavioral therapies like systematic desensitization, which is um, kind of gradually exposing the patient to the fear, and flooding, which is immediate confrontation of the fear, those work by exposing the person in the fear to the fear in order to unlearn these fearful behavioral responses and create associations between the stimuli and a calm or neutral setting so that they feel more relaxed than fearful when they're exposed to this stimuli. And that's obviously very brief and I think there's a little bit of kind of it's it's the same thing as making the fear basically but you are unmaking undoing it instead and I think this is very direct and straightforward I think the they're usually like the cognitive therapies and the behavioral therapies are usually done very separately and to treat different to treat different kinds of fear or different kinds of fear responses, I should say, because there's no different types of fear. But the diagnosis and the, dr the, the drugs that can be used and things like that and the treatment that is chosen, they depend on the category of the fear and the response for it. We have distinctions between phobias and anxiety disorders and panic disorders and just irrational fears that you feel every day and paranoia. So all these distinctions play a part in what the psychiatrist or psychologist will choose as the treatment for the person. I personally think that it would be great to combine cognitive and behavioral therapies because you are kind of fixing the emotional part and you're acknowledging that so that makes it a bit more human rather than test subject-y, you know? And then you'll have behavioral therapies helping you to cope with that so that you don't panic and fear while you're treating that. Because obviously, if you're being exposed to the fear in order to treat it, and if you're exploring all these memories, you kind of need to be able to deal with it in a more relaxed, calm state. So I think it would be great to actually like do a behavioral therapy and then do a cognitive therapy. I'm not sure how that works, to be honest. I'm not a psychiatrist, as I said. But it will be pretty interesting to see that happen uh, in real life. All this talk about fear got me also thinking about safety and why we feel it. 
Whenever I wondered about safety before, I thought it was kind of a social construct, something that's more of an illusion than a reality that we create for ourselves. But in actuality, it's very real. Our bodies and communities and interactions all indicate so. And we have the ability to fear even when there's no imminent threat and it's just a thought in our head or a hypothetical situation that we're thinking of. It's in our head. We can still fear. And with how complex and advanced our fear is, how physiological it is, we're supposed to be in a state of hypervigilance constantly as we can perceive anything and everything as a threat, causing a flight response and isolation to protect ourselves. But we're not only naturally fearful, we are also naturally social. We need connections and we need them to protect ourselves in a way and stay sane. And it, it, they're both very intertwined concepts and responses in ourselves and very intertwined ways in which our brains work. Science explains this as an evolutionary development, so our, our need for a connection is an evolutionary development and our fear is also an evolutionary thing. And so because of, our com of the complexity of our brains and our need for community, we developed the vagus nerve. And this nerve basically has two complexes and links so many nerves to different organs and sensory neurons and emotional responses. It, it links so many things and it's really cool, but it's not, it's not super deeply studied right now. So maybe in, the in, a few, in a few years, I'll make another one of these and we can talk about the vagus nerve alone. <laughs> but it also links emotional responses and things that control our judgment and decision making. It's a very new area of research, but it's incredible how much it does. It's like our humanity uh, core, you know? And the vagal complex that is activated determines whether we feel safe or whether we are going to process it as a fear. The vagal complex promotes feelings of well-being and empathy and connectedness when in a safe setting. So it can be kind of activated to feel that. And it enables us to be more authentic and relaxed around people. And we can think of this as a basic survival instinct to team up or connect to reduce our exposure to threat and to make us feel like we can do more should we be exposed to the threat. And what makes this safe setting that activates all these pleasant feelings in, in the vagal nerve is it's like its own type of learning. By social safety cues like smiling and gentle voice tones, followed by kind acts and friendliness, we learned to feel safe with the person when this happens. For example, if an infant or a child learns these cues when they're surrounded by affection and care and they begin to feel relaxed and pleasant in, and, and, and they begin to get into that state, aka safety. And this feeling of safety is what allows us to be vulnerable and to feel empathy and to make friends and real connections. However, not associating these with affection and care will make us feel nervous about meeting new people or hesitant about uh, about talking to others, other strangers, and make us nervous when speaking in front of an audience. We have that kind of 
instinct of stranger danger if if we don't learn to associate the social cues with the pleasantness and create that safety a safety feeling um, and that is very very interconnected with the way fear conditioning works you can you can kind of and these interconnected circuits and functions in the brain make and shape our communities and relationships and intimacy with both ourselves and others I will be sure to link a very informative and concise interview done with Dr. Stefan Borges. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He does this research on the polyvagal theory that I just explained in very simple terms. And I will also link his book so that you can learn more about safety and how we create it for ourselves and our communities and all the evolution and neuroscience details too. Um, this is the best explanation of fear that I found while I was researching the polyvagal theory and it's really cool because it makes sense in both a kind of more humanity like social science kind of way and also in a neuroscience kind of way which is perfect for me it blends them both perfectly and he has a really good theory I think it's going to be a big deal in a few years and it's going to really be on everyone's like everyone's priority to learn about it I think it's really cool so as you've probably concluded Fear is such a complex emotion and field of study in psychology and neuroscience. I personally love learning all the mechanisms and reasons and explanations on how we come to experience fear. Again, I'd like to say that this is all very simplified explanation and because it's way too intricate and there's too many too much information to share, but that makes it very niche and I want and I just wanted to bring you all something interesting and informative at the same time it's something that's very close to all of us if you do want all those details however I'll be putting all the links for these studies reviews and articles that I read in the episode description my favorite one was titled the biology of fear and I think it it's a review and I think it rounds up a lot of concepts in a really comprehensible and unbiased manner he's kind of like reflecting on all the research while explaining it at the same time so i definitely recommend it if you feel curious now do you have any fears or phobias um i'm scared of being kidnapped um and like similar situations to that <laughs> so i'd like to know what you're afraid of do you think someone can be fearless completely fearless we they just they just never feel anything to fear? What are your philosophical takes on fear and safety? I want you to share all that with me by emailing me or DMing me. Please don't forget to follow at daydreamin underscore pod, which is the podcast page, to message me to stay updated about the episode release dates and interact with me about the content. Let me know what you want to see more of and so we can daydream together. This has been another episode of Daydreamin' hosted by Jenna. Take care and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Bye!